good to be with you. Uh, I'm going to come down here if you don't mind. Um, I'm uh, dear friends with both Aaron and Carrie and um, deeply appreciate their uh, grace-filled way of co-pastoring together. Um, and uh, I'm from New York, and we have about a foot of snow there right now. And uh, actually, that's not a big deal for us. So um, I feel like I am in uh, the Caribbean right now, to be honest with you. So um, I've been uh, doing a bit of a, uh, a tour um, around love over fear. I wrote a book about um, how to love our enemies. And I've been able to kind of visit almost 32 different places to talk about uh, this challenge and the the start of this I'm going to take my phone and my keys and my wallet out of my pockets because I have ADHD and they annoy me does anybody have any kind of any of those little nervous ticks you're just like I gotta get that stuff on so um, uh, the 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 origins of uh, working through love and fear started back in 2011 for me um, a local church pastor up in New York and um, in 2011, uh, during the election of Rom- election season of Romney and Obama, and uh, which makes what we're experiencing now seem like tiddlywinks, right? It's just like that was nothing back then. What we're experiencing now, but the that election um, exposed a faction in our church. And one Sunday, um, there was a lot of talking and wrestling and gossip and, and, and people uh, kind of jockeying for who uh, we should vote for, uh, wanting um, uh, our leaders to come out and say who to vote for um, because they felt like it was such an important election. Um, and one Sunday morning, a dear woman that I just uh, loved so much came up to me after Sunday morning I was preaching and she said, Dan, I don't think I can stay in this church knowing that there are such liberal people here. I don't feel like I can be myself. I feel like I'm being judged. I have to leave. I pleaded with her to tell her she was welcomed, that uh, she has a place at the table, and it wasn't enough, and she left. Fast forward two weeks, and uh, a couple came to me with the same intense uh, uh, feeling but from the opposite perspective. And they said, Dan, uh, there's too many conservative people here. We don't feel like we can be complicit with the injustice uh, and oppressive beliefs that people hold here. We don't feel like we can be true to ourselves. We have to leave. Um, And I pleaded with them. I love them to stay, and it wasn't enough. And so within two weeks' period of time, I had people from both opposite perspectives say that they could not be in the same space with each other. And I didn't really have an answer. I didn't know how to, uh, to fix this situation. And uh, the more I explored, it was, it was a sentiment amongst our people that they didn't really, if they were conservative, they did not like progressives quite strongly. And the progressives in our church felt quite strongly that they didn't like conservatives. And both of us, both of them thought they were idiots. <laughs> there was this, uh, this, this undertow inside, and I didn't know, honestly, if conservatives and progressives could actually share table fellowship together. Could they actually enjoy Christian community 
and deeply love one another. That was a question I had out of this situation. And honestly, at that point, I was quite doubtful um, that people could move beyond those things to actually inhabit life with one another long term. Um, Polarization is what we're going to talk about this morning, and that's what we were experiencing. We were polarized. And uh, what I was experiencing in my little community 2011, so almost, you know, almost uh, t- 10 years ago, um, has been happening on a national scale. It doesn't take, I don't have to convince you that the U.S. is quite polarized, do I? I mean, just f- scroll through your Facebook feed for a second and you can see all the things that people hate and are telling you you should, be, should hate, what you should fear. Um, but just recently, the Pew Research report has just put out that one in six people has stopped talking to a family member because of the recent Trump and Hillary election. Uh, polarization is real. It's a riff. It creates factions. It creates contempt and anger and distance. And we were feeling it in my local place on a real life Scenario. Now, you may not be feeling that um, overtly here, uh, but you and I both know that that's uh, a dynamic of division amongst us. And we have to address polarization, not because we're trying to, s- to stump on Capitol Hill and get our, uh, our, our politician elected, but because polarization is actually a injury to the church. It is debilitating the witness of God as is, is love within the Christian community. Um, polarization is real in our politics, and the sad point is that the church is actually being discipled by the polarization in our culture, not the other way around. Um, we are kind of following along with the conditioning that's happening around us. What is polarization? I think I've got a definition there, if someone can hit that. Yes. Polarization takes people that have something in common, emphasizes their differences, hardens their differences into disgust, and slowly turns disgust into blatant hatred for each other. Polarization is a succession. It's like a funnel. It starts with we have something in common, and no longer is that what's important between us. Now our differences are what's most important between us. And now our differences aren't just differences. I'm actually quite disgusted with the differences that we have. And no longer am I disgusted with them. I actually start to hate you. This is what the succession of polarization polarization happens in a culture, civilization, and it's happening within Christianity. Um, There are progressive Christians, there are conservative Christians, and the two try not to intermingle. And it's because of the succession that our culture has discipled us into and we are taking our cues from them. Polarization um, is, from my perspective, is a power in principality. The Apostle Paul talks about the work of the enemy or the manifestations of Satan and he calls uh, polarization a power and principality. It's a, it's a way that the enemy works. Um, most of the time we think of Satan as a, as a kind of red, red dude with a tail, and he's just tempting you to do really dirty things. But the Apostle Paul talks about the enemy often in the sense of powers and principalities, systems and structures that begin to oppress 
and uh, control the people of God. Walter Wink, who's a theologian, has said that polarization is a social dynamic that disunites humans from each other, from creation, and from their creator. And uh, that's what's happening in polarization. Ultimately, the effect is that it is creating a disunity amongst all of us. Separation, siloing. Jesus inhabited a very polarized time in the first century. Not too much unlike our time. And it's, it's quite easy because of uh, social media and technology to think, man, there has never been a more polarized time than now. Um, but Jesus inhabited something very similar. Without those technologies, um, in the selection of Jesus' disciples, um, we often skip skip through some of the dynamics because we're not aware of what was happening in the first century. But in the first century, there were political parties. Now, uh, then uh, politics and religion were intermingled, so there were religious factions, but they had political agendas, literally governing agendas associated with their, their theological agendas, which actually is quite similar today too. People, we, we, those things get intermingled. Uh, we say there's separation of church and state, but we know that it all kind of gets mashed together. And so that's what was happening back then. So when Jesus gathered his disciples, and we're familiar with that story, recruiting and gathering people to follow him on mission, he gathered three zealots. Um, and zealots were not a, just a Jewish uh, uh, theological sect. They were a political sect. And they were considered militant nationalists. They believed that uh, loyalty to the Hebrew faith um, using uh, the military was the primary way to get governance again in their domain. Does that make sense? That was the zealots' agendas. Then Jesus, so Jesus gathered three of those. Then he gathered a tax collector. You familiar with that story a little bit maybe? And the tax collector was favored and was in cahoots with the Sadducee party. Now, often we hear the word Sadducee, and we think that's just another religious uh, philosophy or uh, teacher. But Sadducees were a political party who believed, um, and you can find some of this out by doing first century research, is that the Sadducees did not believe in miracles. They didn't believe the Old Testament was miracles. They were... They were um, they were naturalists, and so they didn't believe any of that stuff happened literally. And they w- believed that God, Yahweh, wanted to govern through partnership with the Roman government. So the Sadducees actually created civic structures and tax structures, um, all under the banner of bringing in God's shalom through partnership with Rome, because they didn't believe Yahweh was going to do miracles. They think God, Yahweh was going to do stuff through natural means. Does that sound like anybody now, maybe, potentially? Right, so, so the, the tax collectors thought they were doing a good thing. You know, the, there's, there's a lot of snottiness around tax collectors that we read in the Gospels, but at that time, tax collectors were hated, but also loved because they were doing, some sense, keeping civic structure, common good happening. But they got a little bit uh, cheaty and, and, and lie You know, they started to take more than they should. Then he also, Jesus also collected fishermen who were, um, at that point, would be considered quite poor. 
and they were being fishermen specifically and blue-collar workers at that point, the Roman government would overtax them and take up, upwards to about 80% of their income, and they would have like nothing left. And so they were just really enslaved to Roman taxation, and so blue-collar workers during that time were considered very poor, and they hated the Roman government because of the way they made their life so difficult. And then there was... Um, Judas uh, that Jesus drew in and some people call him Judas the Zealot but he actually was part of the Sicarii party which is part of the Zealots but was a kind of a double click deeper part of the Zealot party that the Sicarii party uh, not only were militant nationalists but they believed that they were called to purify the Jewish people from being in any partnership with Rome so they would kill their own people they would they would um, think of it this way. Uh, anybody heard of, this, is, this goes way back in my history, but they used to call, some Baptists were called double separationists, which means I would associate with a Baptist if I was Baptist, but if this Baptist associated with an Episcopal, I would stop associating with you. Does that make sense? So like, I don't, never would associate with an Episcopal, but a Baptist who associates with Episcopal, that Baptist is out, Right? And this is kind of what the Sicarius were. They weren't just militant nationalists. They would kill their, and hurt their own people to purify because they would associate with, with Rome. So Judas is, is uh, more than a zealot. He's borderline a, he's Antifa, right? He's a, he's, a, he's a white supremacist. He is intense about his, the purity of his culture and uh, their ability to, to rule. Then you have John, and a lot of people don't know John's story, but John is actually a wealthy nobleman, the Apostle John, and his dad is a Pharisee. His, da- he was a so- his dad was a Pharisee. He's, he's born into wealth. He doesn't become a Pharisee, obviously, but his dad becomes a Pharisee in the Jewish temple. Well, just think about that. I mean, Jesus is railing against Pharisees all the time, and John's like, that's my dad's line of work, right? So there's, there's just so much going on in this scenario. Let me just give you a frame of reference. Is Jesus' selection of the disciples would be like putting together a home church or a small group made up of a few Black Lives Matter protesters, a blue-collar worker who thinks Donald Trump is the best thing for the country, a couple people on public assistance working at McDonald's, a wealthy Republican who has an oil refinery down south, and then maybe a, a member of Antifa or, the, or a white supremacist organization, all in the same small group. That's what it would have felt like. It would be an understatement to say that these people would have loathed being in the same room with each other. And Jesus holds the space, brings them together, and then they live on the road for three years. So when Jesus says these words, I think we've got this scripture. When Jesus says these, can we go there? Maybe? Next? Bam. When Jesus says this, it starts to make sense why this is so disruptive. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, I give you a new command to love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you. In this way, you are perfect as your father is perfect. Now you get how, why Jesus would say this, right? If you're living in a situation, you are in fellowship, in community in the situation with your enemies, then there's no wonder that Jesus has to say this, right? This is like surgical words. And I believe that when Jesus said this, this was irksome and irritating for the disciples to hear because they were polarized. And polarization 
is natural. It's normal. It's how we orient in tribe apart from each other rather than tribing together. But Jesus is bringing in a new ethic, maybe a new kingdom of love that is actually going to disrupt the polarization. I like to see that Jesus started a polarization busting movement. It was, it was disruptive at that time. And the only way that Jesus could say this, throw this next slide up there, is because Jesus lives and moves and breathes beyond polarization. He dwells beyond the us versus them. Christ's identity was not with a political party or a political philosophy or a theological bent. His primary identity was one who is beloved by the Father. He knew where he belonged and where he was rooted. So therefore... He could dwell beyond polar. He could hang out and, and eat dinner and enjoy the company of Pharisees, and he could do the same with prostitutes. Does this make sense? It didn't mess with who he was. So much of polarization is because we have associated or affiliated or maybe even rooted our identity to a specific political perspective. So therefore, fellowship with the them feels unnatural. Actually, there's, uh, during my recent tour, I've been doing some surveys. I'm not going to do it here, but um, for conservatives to share table fellowship with progressives or to move towards them and befriend them, um, 80% of the people uh, have said, if they ascribe as conservatives, said it feels like compromise to do that. Just to befriend and begin to um, share life together with progressives feels like they're compromising something. Potentially compromising morality or holiness, you know, some of those terms that they hold dear. And progressives have said, uh, same, same amount, 80 plus percent have said that to begin to dwell with conservatives and unpack things with conservatives and love conservatives feels like complicity to injustice. So just association and, and deeper community feels like complicity or compromise. And so what happens is the two just do not intermingle much. And Jesus is addressing, um, disrupting that dynamic. Um, so much so that he is telling them, you heard you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you something actually quite upside down. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies, uh, what he's using neighbor as is affinity. You've heard it said, love those who are kind of like you, your neighbor. You have affinity with them. And be polarized, disgusted, repelled, move away from those who you can't stand, your enemy. And the reason that Jesus sets up that paradigm is because he's acknowledging what's natural. It's natural to love your neighbor it's completely unnatural to love your enemy. But what Jesus is doing is introducing a, a, not something natural, he's bringing something in that's unnatural, potentially even supernatural. And he's calling his disciples to enter into this supernatural work because everybody is choosing their corners. Conservatives here, progressives there, zealots there, tax collectors there. And Jesus is saying, we're going to do something new together, but it has to begin with love. You have to love your enemies, not loathe your enemies. This is, uh, Jesus is addressing our instinct 
to, to treat enemies like enemies that creates more enemies. There is an antagonistic cycle that happens, and you've probably been in this before, where if you treat someone like you hate them, they hate you more and you hate them more and then you just keep hating each other, right? It's just a spiral dynamic that the Apostle Paul would say is a power and principality. Something actually assembles between the two of you that's actually more powerful than just the two of you. And it's a demonic dynamic. And this is what's happening in Christianity. So this, this, uh, this issue, this... Uh, this uh, condition that we're in has fascinated me ever since, uh, about 10 years ago. And so I, the more I explored Jesus' discipleship situation with his disciples, I thought, man, what would it look like to do that now? Uh, I wanted to believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was strong enough to potentially disrupt, again, that same dynamic. So... My wife and I, uh, Tanya, uh, during the 2016 election came up with this uh, nutty idea that we were going to put together a short uh, eight-week dinner and discussion with people that were polarized with each other. Uh, We were going to host it, and there was going to be a little bit of training, a lot of dialogue, but we wanted to see if we could actually move from uh, seeing each other as enemies to seeing each other as humans and caring for one another. And so we actually put together like a, uh, a recruiting list and we recruited a Muslim, a Christian, someone that was queer, a, a straight person, pro-refugee person, an anti-refugee person, uh, one African-American, um, an evangelical, a liberal mainline person, a police officer, um, and two people that were on public assistance. We recruited them all. We asked about 18 people and, and 11 came. We almost hit 12, which was like, would have been really secret sauce, right? Um, but so we, we, and we said straight out, listen, this is going to be eight weeks. We're going to be talking about our differences in politics and social issues, but this is, a, this is an experiment to see if we can actually learn to love one another. And a lot of people were actually fascinated by that. That's why they said, yeah, we'll, we'll commit to eight weeks and free food. And so this mashup, this crockpot of people assembled in my living room, in my neighborhood. And uh, the first night we got together, uh, we had laid out an agenda. And the, the first night, we just wanted to kind of ask and brainstorm, not really kind of start getting at anything, is what is our response in the face of our differences? What's the natural, what's one of the natural responses that we have when we're faced with differences or disgust or opinions that we can't stand? And we put uh, big white sticky notes up in my living room, you know those big fat ones you can you put up, and we had people journal, um, you know, how have they responded, how do they see people respond, and sometimes people had family members that they were thinking of, and um, what... We, what, but most people, we funneled everything into a couple categories, but one of the clear categories is, is that when we're faced with differences, disgust or opinions or perspectives that we can't stand, uh, we do this first thing. Throw this up there if you can. We attack. So I got a cute little monster here. Um, 
I like cute things like that. They help us remember. We actually came up with this visual of the monster because we've all had experiences when we were kids, probably you guys as well, um, when we think there's a monster under our bed. You ever been there before, right? And the more you're on your bed, more, the more you're ruminating and thinking, the more real the monster gets. And you swear you saw a green hand come up on your bed, right? But that's because why? You've given your mind over to that, right? And so what we decided is that people that we disagree with, we, the more we think about them, the more we loathe them, the more they take, instead of being a human that is loved, they take on a monster form, a distortion in our mind. And so our first response is to attack them. So what I want you to do right now, where you're sitting, is turn to a couple people, and I want you to share what brainstorm we're just going to spitball here what are some ways that people attack in the face of differences you don't have to be confessional and vulnerable if you want to you can but just what are a couple ideas how do we attack what are some of the 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 way either covert or overt ways we attack people with different beliefs ready break out go this 30 seconds of conversation what do you got keep going Okay, break. What do you got? What are some? Ide- what, what did you? What did you get? What do you have over here? So I kind of the whole keyboard warrior. Yes, keyboard warrior. You're gonna you're gonna do something through a detached medium, yeah. and you're gonna you're gonna lambaste them. You're gonna mic drop on them. Attributing extreme positions that the other party doesn't actually have. Yeah. So you characterize them, right? Um, every single person that disagrees with me is Hitler. Right, you you extreme. You, come on, we see that that happens. Right, we extreme, create an extreme. Yes, you hit. Ah, yes, yes. Hence the guy there. He's giving a swing to the monster. Yes. What else do we see? Uh, a legal system. What? A legal system that supports this. Yes. So a legal system. Can we can legalize it to? Well, yes. Like yes. You know, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, good. Yeah, so we bring in the legal system to back us up to hurt our enemies. Yes. Yes. So a la- we come up with like a label to kind of put them in a box to deal with them. Yes. Anything else? We separate. Yes, we're going to get to that one soon. So we find these ways to deal with whatever this monster is, um, and for all of us, it's different, and one, a good work of discipleship, if you want to follow Jesus, is rather than being delusional that you have disgust or hatred or fear towards other people, is to actually be honest about it. And um, uh, 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 psychologist Larry Crabb says, you can't transform what you don't name. So a lot of people don't like to say that every time I have this talk, someone says, I don't have any enemies. Like, good for you. You treat people like enemies, you just don't like to call them enemies, right? There are monsters in your life, you just don't want to say that they are. We all do. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies, because it's a human condition to have them, so we have to name them. 
And they all are different for different people. Um, and, and in discipleship, we have to excavate the things that are having control over us that we're not aware of. Um, that's why the Apostle Paul says, take your minds captive, right? Because there's all kinds of stuff happening that we're not reflecting on and identifying. It's really, really interesting that even our very makeup our very neurological, any neur- neurology nerds out there starting getting, it's just in the last 10, 15 years, it's getting popular, but um, our brains are wired for fear and anger and hatred. One part of our brain is, and it's one of the strongest parts of our brain, the amygdala. So when you're looking at, uh, you're looking at a brain here, the amygdala is like right about here over your ear, and the amygdala is the fear-based center of our brain. When you see a bear in the woods, you either attack it, kill it, or you run for your life. You don't go up to the bear and you hug it and say, hey, let's talk this out, right? The amygdala says fight or flight, attack or avoid. It doesn't give you any other options, right? And the amygdala is loud, and they call it emotional flooding. It floods your brain, almost like what happened downstairs to your living room space. It just ruins everything, and it shuts down what we also call the prefrontal cortex. Anybody been in an argument before? Like, you're not thinking sane. It's just flooding it all, right? And, and this is what's happening in our culture right now, and this is what happens with attack, is the labels, is the keyboard. It's amygdala screaming and saying, the only way I'm going to win this is if I kill the bear, right? The problem is people aren't bears. Now, there's some exceptions. People are going to talk about abusers or rapists, and those things are true. We could, that's, that's a, read my book if you want to see how I deal with that. But for the most part, we are not in prime, we're not in survival mode in the desert trying to live off of uh, lake water and nets, right? We are living with humans. And the more that we treat humans like monsters instead of image bearers, the more we're polarized and the more damage we do to one another. So the amygdala actually works in cahoots with polarization. It loves it. Our fear-based center really does enjoy the political polarization of our culture. So discipleship is potentially helping to rewire your brain or send new pathways in your brain that are unnatural. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for complex emotions like forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and active listening. All those things that if you get married, you have to learn how to do or you're going to have a horrible marriage. They don't come naturally. Active listening does not come natural. To actually behold someone and listen to the words they're saying with compassion and curiosity is unnatural. Most people, actually the majority of people, listen to think about what they're going to say in contrast to what's being said, right? It's not natural. And so to awaken the prefrontal cortex, we actually have to resist the amygdala. But our culture loves, loves this stuff. And we can see in our politics, I just like to throw this up there just for a little anecdotal evidence. Um, this, is, this is, can we throw this next slide up? This is uh, Donald Trump. The attacks on our police and the terrorism in our cities threaten our very way of life. Many have seen the chaos in our communities and witnessed the terror of thugs, rapists, lawbreakers, and we are their victims. Right, that's amygdala talk. That's fear-based. That's just saying... We hate them, let's attack them, they are monsters, right? You're hearing that language in one of our politicians. So just in case you think I'm anti-Trump, let's let's, let's look at the other 
Hillary Clinton, I'm, I'm the last thing standing between you and the apocalypse. Power over bodies is under violent attack, and the only way to survive is we beat back the deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs that threaten to enslave us. Like, listen, you hear both of them talking the same way with different ambitions and different ideologies they're holding, but they are choosing attack. And we're caught in this firestorm between them. And so what's really, really important is to say that both of these people, whether you agree with their, their agenda or not, their tactics, their approach is actually creating more damage than good. And I do not want to be discipled by that. That is not what Jesus said in John, to love your enemies. It's the opposite. This is hatred towards our enemies. Listen, enemies have legit hurt on you. That's why Jesus said pray for them. So this isn't just like like your enemies because they didn't do anything and they're not that bad. Jesus is telling the people to love their enemies because they really feel hurt by them. This polarizing dynamic, um, what happens in the brain is it compels us to live in these either-or categories, like very stark lines and contrasts. That's why we come up with labels. Um, and... Uh, this is part of adolescent development to, is to outgrow the either-or categories. Perfect example is my son, Daniel, who's 16 now, but when he was uh, two, um, I would put him to bed and sing him a song and read him a book, and then I would tell him he, I love him, and he would say, I only love mama. <laughs> you know what that felt like? It's like I was like, no, oh, Daniel... No, daddy loves you. Only mama. Love only mama. What was going on in his little brain? He couldn't fathom loving both. He, his brain wasn't developed enough to think that he could love us both equally. And I kept saying, Daniel, you can love us both. Only mama, right? Now he loves us both, and we're snuggling with each other, right? But for almost like a full year, he was stuck in this either-or dynamic. And I talk, took it a little personal. Am I not doing the right things? This is my first child. What am I, what's going on? But really, the do- doctor said, listen, that's just brain development. And in one year, he's going to be like, I love you more than mama now, right? That, he's like, he's going through that, that, that maturity. And, but that's what two- and three-year-olds do, right? Um, but this is what polarization actually does. It's not... Carl Jung says it's not intellectual enlightenment to talk about other people in either or categories. It's actually adolescent regression. So we often think as adults that it's really, really informed to talk about people in, say, good, bad, holy, unholy, moral, immoral, oppressed, oppressor, ignorant, informed, like these stark categories. Nobody lives in those categories. But that's what our brain wants to do, to, to treat them a certain way. And that's actually emotional immaturity. But I, I'm so saddened that, that Jesus' followers talk this way about each other. Listen, those category, categories might help to talk about systems, but they are horrible to, ta- to work through, through, for, for transformation. They are horrendous. They shut down any pathway for transformation. So one of the things that we have to do is actually start... Uh, Uh, auditing the way we talk. Uh, Robert Dunbar, uh, anthropologist, was was curious about what people talk about when they're together. He wanted to kind of see what people, when groups get together, what do they talk about? So he took 3,000 people through a five-year study, put them in groups, and just recorded their conversations, 
And he found that 79% of the time that people are together talking, even one-on-one or in groups, they're talking negatively about another person or a people group. We are romanticized by attacking and speaking ill of others. So we have to overcome this. And this is what came out in our first meeting together, is that we attack. And as, as our group uh, shared all the different ways we attack, and some people were confessional, and some people were just talking anecdotally what they've seen, we all sat back down in their chairs after that first meeting. We looked up at the board and thought, oh. And, and this is not a room filled with people who are Christians. But all of us looked at that and said, that is certainly not working. It's not working. There's something deep inside of us as those created in the image of God that knows that attacking is not functionally changing us. We can, we can see that when we become honest about it. So the second week we got together, uh, we discerned uh, what you said earlier, brother, is that we, the second option we choose um, is we, throw up the next slide if you can, is we avoid. So, uh, and this, this happens sometimes based on personality. I'm an avoider. Any avoiders in the room? Any attackers in the room, right? We, we kind of defer towards one or the other, but we avoid. So what I want you to do is just 30 seconds. How do we avoid? This one's a little harder to get at, but what are ways that people avoid or you've avoided or you've seen avoidance? Go, talk to each other. Come up with some ideas. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? How do we avoid? You say sorry. How else do we avoid? We unfriend, yes. What else? We distract ourselves. Yes, 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 yes. We just choose not to talk. We, yep, we kind of, in combination, we just kind of, it's not happening. We try to try to put it in some compartment where it's not it's not really affecting us yes a physical distance yep what else anything else we kind of just be civil and just yeah we just kind of and we cover over some things just for the sake of not killing each other I mean avoidance is my is my deal that's my uh, besetting Nature in the face of difference. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, I had a significant difference, and I was significantly hurt and offended by somebody else in our church. And uh, I was going. I was in the grocery store, and I saw them, and I ducked down below the pile of oranges <laughs> in the grocery store. A grown man. Serious. Amygdala. Boom. Just like that. I mean, I, 
silly, humiliating to actually think that I did that. But what is happening? I'm trying to protect myself because I don't want to actually be kind to this person. I want to avoid them. We all have different ways that we do that. And there's, there's, there's no uh, shame in beginning to identify the ways that you deal with differences and hurt and offense and disgust. But if it controls you and is covertly just manipulating you and you're submitting to the amygdala, you're not being transformed into the way of love. So first we have to be honest about that. And avoidance was, was one of those. And, and we, we put up on the white sticky note and people identify the ways that we avoid. And some people shared anecdotally about how they've actually done it um, in their marriage, in their families, in their politics. Uh, what we're seeing right now, actually, uh, the Gallup report just two years ago, and this is a s- frightening stat if it's correct, is that 72% of progressives only have progressive friends, and 78% of conservatives only have prog- conservative friends. They're actually calling this di- new dynamic siloing, where just only about 25% of the country actually is actually in relationship with someone that thinks like unlike them. I mean, that's avoidance. <laughs> Right, this, this massive chasm being created. And so you look at attack and you look at avoid and you go, neither of these are transformative. Neither of these are creating change. Neither of these can be the inbreaking kingdom of God. They're natural. They're natural to my mind. They're natural to civilization. But they're not bringing us transformation. I think this actually might be one of the most important points of discipleship in the Christian community right now. If we can't learn, and more than just learn, if we cannot begin to live actively as those who love their enemies, the witness of Christ is silenced. Because the primary point of the gospel in Christ's coming is that it says, while we were yet enemies, God loved us. So while we were polarized against God, God came in kindness. That's why it says in Hebrews, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the attack of God or the avoidance of God. If we don't get this lived out and begin to work it out together in our time, we don't have a whole lot to point to to say that Jesus is real. So we, we, we did these, in two weeks, we, we kind of brainstormed this, we journaled this, and there was just some awakening happening. We were kind of seeing ourselves, and, and it was actually quite, um, quite civil, and we didn't really argue much for those first two weeks. And then we took a three-week break. It was Christmas, New Year's break, so we took a three-week break. We we're going to come back together for the third week, and something happened that was, I think, was divine. Well, one morning, uh, it was the week before Christmas, I'm walking to my coffee shop, um, got a coffee shop a couple blocks from my house, and I'm walking there early in the morning, 7 a.m., and I look across the street, and this is really shocking to see in upstate Syracuse, New York, is uh, one of our neighbors had scrolled off his porch a massive, about the size of that entire, between those two posts there, a massive Confederate flag. And I walked past that, and I thought, what are you doing? You idiot. Now, depending, it doesn't matter whether you think that was, he's justified in doing that, or you think Confederate flag has good history or bad history. That's not actually the point. The point is he rolled it out in our neighborhood, and it was going to have an impact. There's no way around it. 
But in my mind, I thought, he's an idiot. I'm not going to, this is, anybody think those thoughts in their head? Or is it just me that says that stuff? Okay. But I kept walking. I walked a couple blocks, and then suddenly I realized that Shauna, who is in this depolarizing group that we put together, a black single mom lives straight across the street from him. She's going to walk, I, I started to realize she's going to walk out with a cup of coffee, and s- that's what she's going to be greeted with. So I went to her house. I walked back to her house, still a little after seven. I knock on her door. She opens up the door, and she's like, hair disheveled, cup of coffee. What, what, what's, what, Dan, what's, what's, what's up? What do you need? Well, Shauna, don't, don't look across the street. Of course she looked across the street. <laughs> she, you know, I was like, oh. And the moment she saw it, her countenance dropped, tears in her eyes. And I'm like, Shauna, what, what, what can I do? I'm so sorry. I don't know. She just kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? I don't know. I said, Shauna, oh, what, what can I do? I'll go talk to him. No, 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 no don't know. So we go to sit down in her kitchen at a chair, and she's just a mess. And her little son, Grayson, her son, Grayson's two years old. He's sitting in a little high chair there, and she's just like, I don't want, I can't just walk out every day with Grayson and see that. I'm, what do you want me to do? Anything I can do for you? How can I support you? She's like, I don't know. I just need some space. So I gave her some space. And... That night, she happened to have Bible study at her uh, primarily African-American church um, just a couple blocks away. She went to Bible study, and she told her Bible study group what happened. What, she, what happened. And her group, one part of the group, one faction of the group said, Shauna, we're going we're gonna to cut that flag down in the middle of the night tonight, and we're going to post on his lawn that he's a white supremacist. We're not allowing this to happen in our neighborhood. Another part of the group was like, Shauna, just ignore it. He's going to take it down. Don't worry about it. It'll pass. Shauna left that Bible study, and something in her soul knew that that was not, something was not right about either of those options. Was Charlie, the, the neighbor across the street, a white supremacist? Probably. We'll find out in a second. But that wasn't what was most important to her. She knew that there was something deeper than just these two options. And that's what the group chose, attack or avoid. So she calls me up the next morning, uh, Thursday morning, and she said, Dan, I've got to go over and talk to Charlie. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what are you? Okay. She's like, but you can't go with me. Can you watch Grayson? I'm going to go and talk to him. If I don't come out in an hour, come and get me. She's... She's nervous. She's afraid. Genuinely and rightfully so afraid. So she knocks on his door. It's pounding on his door. Pounding, pounding. He does not answer. She knows he's home because she sees his car in the driveway. And she goes home and bakes a blueberry pie and brings it back across the street and puts it at his door and leaves a note. Says, Charlie, you're my neighbor can we just talk? 
Amazing. And two weeks go by. Silence. Nothing. Radio silence. He doesn't even respond. Obviously, the blueberry pie has been eaten by then. So he enjoyed the pie, but would not engage her in conversation. And she's just tortured by this. And now the entire neighborhood and those in our depolarizing group know what's going on. It's just a perfect hot example of what we're trying to to process together. And one day she's walking Grayson in the neighborhood, a stroller down the sidewalk, and she sees Charlie pull up into his driveway with his car. And like the paparazzi, she converges on him. And she comes, he's parked in his driveway, and she comes up to his window. He's still sitting in his, in his and she's pounding on the window. Charlie, can we just talk? Can we talk, Charlie? Can we talk? And he's just ignoring her. Fifteen minutes he's sitting in the car as if she's not there. Eventually he opens his door and pushes her out. She's up against the door, pushes her out, and get, puts his head down and starts walking up to, it, to the steps towards his, towards his door. And she keeps pace with him, walking with him. Charlie, Charlie, can we just talk? I just want to talk. I'm not angry. I want to talk. Finally, they get to the door. He opens the door. He's about to close, and he turns around. And he says, frickin' fine. We can talk tonight. Come over. Sorry about my language. He actually said a different word. So now she's, she doesn't actually want to go over. She's afraid. She calls me up. She says, I don't know what I got myself into. I don't know if I can do this. So you don't have to, Shauna. She's like, no, I got to do this. I don't want to do this. So she goes over to his house, and she walks. He lets her in. It was 8 o'clock at night, and she, she walks into his house. And the moment she walks into his house, she sees signs of life. She sees the pictures of his grandkids on his, the mantle of his fireplace. She sees his medals from the Kuwait conflict of war that he was in. She sees a solo recli- recliner all by itself. And she realizes he lives alone. And he's probably estranged from his family. And they sit down at the, his dinner table. And right away he just starts to tell her why the Confederate flag means this, means that, means this, means that. He gives her this entire argument. And she listens. And eventually she says, Charlie, I can't go toe-to-toe with you on this. I just need to tell you one thing. It hurt me. And he gives her more argument. And she says, I know, I hear what you're saying, but Charlie, I'm just hurt. I'm hurt by this. You're my neighbor. He says, fine, I'll take the flag now. Seems like a victory, small victory. So she goes home, and about a week later, so now we're about almost getting close to four weeks that this thing happened, and she looks outside her window, and uh, people are, you know, have since kind of congratulated her that she, she beat back Charlie. And um, she looks out her window, and... Charlie's out shoveling her driveway one snowy morning. She, what is she goes out there, races out there, and it's like, Charlie, what are you doing? You don't need to... F- you know, so now she's like, you're not obligated. You, he's like, no, no. That's what neighbors do. You can already hear, like, some. what happened? What shifted? What happened between them that now, even the way he talks or the way that he is envisioning who she is and who he is together is different. And she goes, oh, okay, thanks so much. 
And as she's walking away, he says, if you ever need babysitting, I can help out. And she's shaking her head, not over my dead body, <laughs> right? Well, two days later, she's desperate. Grayson's taking a nap, and she just needs to get some milk at the grocery store 15, 10, 15 minutes away. And she calls him up desperate because she's called everybody, and nobody can help her. And she doesn't even know why she's doing it. She just says, can you just come over for five minutes? I, he's sleeping. You only have to. He's like, sure. He comes over. She makes a 10-minute trip, a five-minute trip. And she comes in the house, and she says, thanks so much, Charlie. I really, really appreciate it. And you ever have a guest that won't leave? That's what starts to happen. He, he's just kind of like pacing, and she's like, really, thank you. Thank you. You Thanks. And he's like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Charlie, you want to stay for tea or coffee? Like she knows that he doesn't want to leave. So he sits down, and they're sitting at the t- table with her tea and his coffee, and he looks at her and he says, Shauna, I've been thinking about it. Um, I think I might have a little bit of racism in me. Now, I wish I, man, I wish she was here. Because she'll tell you, I never once used the word racist with him. I never once called him a label. It's fascinating that that what happened between them caused him to reflect upon his own actions and who he was. So much so that he says, I think I might be a little bit of a racist. And then she puts her hand on his shoulder and she says, it's okay, Charlie. I forgive you. And Shauna, I don't really think, I can't really, I don't think I've ever had a, I think you might be my only black friend. She's like, well, that's great. Charlie, I'm glad to be your friend. And he's like, I'm really glad to be yours. I mean, this is such elementary dialogue, but so powerful. And what, when we got back together after New Year's, our group, it was Shauna that was able to actually tell us what the third way was. What is the other option between these two? She chose, and if you can put this, she chose this way of affection. Affection is typically a a word that we only associate with people that we really, really love and feel intimate with. It's, It's a visceral, tangible word. It's not something you would associate with someone that you feel polarized against. But she understood, uh, I think intuitively in her body, that attack and avoid was just going to probably create more of an enemy dynamic. She wanted transformation, so she actually moved towards him with affection. And what affection does in the prefrontal cortex is that it awakens part of our mind that is closed off. That's what she did with her warmth and her kindness and and her pointedness with him. She actually made Charlie awake to something he would completely have been closed off to. Does every story work out like this story? No. And that's not what this is about. This is not about pragmatics. This is not about do, do one plus one plus one will equal two. This is actually about something su- supernatural. And she practiced supernatural and God's inbreaking kingdom broke in. Instead of warring hostility with Charlie, she moved towards him with warm hospitality. And over the last couple years, 
their friendship in our neighborhood has actually been probably the greatest witness of healing that we've ever seen. And what we need faith for, what we need to believe in again, is that attack and avoid cannot heal us. Affection, as, as in following the wake of Christ, is what Christ has done towards us, to awaken us to his love. Jesus did not come with judgment. He came with mercy. And it's mercy when you begin to understand, and you know yourself, you know that, 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 that you're a mixture of both beauty and brokenness, but when God is merciful and kind, and, 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 and just like he said to his disciples, I call you friends, when you are overwhelmed by that kind of affection, you want to respond. You want to follow. And therefore, when you're filled with that kind of affection, you can offer that affection to other people. This is the good news of the gospel. And to recover this supernatural kingdom, we have got to step into affection. We have to learn the tactics of affection. I worked this out in my book a little bit. And we have to learn new muscles of how to be affectionate. It's not just being kind and nice. It's actually learning how to dismantle the enemy dynamic rather than just accepting the most easiest pathways of attack or avoid. Wendell Berry, in closing, Wendell Berry, a wonderful writer I love, he says this about affection. Everything turns on affection. When we have affection for difficult places and difficult people, things that were not possible become possible. Things that were closed off to us become opened. Affection is like a key that that when we thought there's no way the door could be opened because I've been banging on it and I walked away, affection actually can make something open that potentially we thought was going to stay closed forever. It's not pragmatic. It's actually making space for the inbreaking kingdom of God. I am convinced that if we would, this doesn't mean that you have to diminish your passions politically or diminish your, your, the offenses that you feel, but this is more about a bodily practice. I believe that if we would just lower our defense around our positions and where we stand and who we think we are and stop putting our identity in our, our stances and instead learn the work of enemy love, we would overturn the world. They wouldn't have any, I, they wouldn't know what the heck is going on if Christians began to be lovers of enemies. Because it's so peculiar. Actually, it says in Romans, it's a scandal. Do you know what a scandal is? It's simultaneously repelling, what the, and compelling, huh? It's just, this is a scandal to love your enemies. The world wouldn't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit any category. I want you to close your eyes. And I just want to give you uh, 30 seconds of space, silence, There's nobody in your head. It's just you with the Spirit. I don't know who you feel polarized against. I don't know who the enemy might be in your life right now. But you do. I just want you to name who that person is in your head, in the silence. If it's a person, it's a family member, if it's a people group, Maybe it's someone in your own 
workplace, maybe it's someone here in this church, I just want you to name who that person feels like a monster to you. Don't say it out loud, just sit with that. 